Welcome to Innovation at the Edge, a podcast dedicated to bold ideas that will build a more sustainable and resilient world. We interview global thought leaders and discuss what's new in innovation and share insights for both entrepreneurs and corporations to build more agile and resilient businesses. Tomorrow's low-carbon and all-electric world will be created by both disruptive entrepreneurs and large corporations. And this podcast provides advice to both on how to scale their ideas. No one can predict the future. And in this global pandemic, the future feels more uncertain than ever. Scenario planning is a tool to help organizations look at different paths that can lead to alternative outcomes. This episode of Innovation at the Edge features Emmanuel Lagarique, Chief Innovation Officer at Schneider Electric, interviewing Rafael Ramirez, the world-leading expert on scenario planning and director of the Oxford University Scenarios Program. Emmanuel and Rafael discuss possible scenarios we are facing, why resiliency is far more important than efficiency in this crisis, and why every company should be focusing on their procurement strategies right now. Hi, everyone. I'm Emmanuel Legarig, and I'm pleased today to have with us Rafael Ramirez, the first professor of practice at Oxford University in scenario planning and the head of uh, scenario planning program at the university, and also a founding partner at Norman Partners, a company which has helped Schneider Electric in its uh, first steps into scenario planning. Rafael is a very influential person and definitely one of the lead experts in the world when it comes to scenario planning. He's working with companies, governments, and NGOs. Rafael, welcome. Thank you very much, Emmanuel, for having me here, and uh, I'm delighted to join you in this podcast. So, uh, Rafael, scenario planning doesn't mean predicting the future. Can you describe what is scenario planning about exactly? Yes, it's actually in many ways very straightforward. I was yesterday talking with people from the Inter-American Development Bank on the future of Chile, for example. So what kind of policy would the Inter-American Bank inform the Chilean government with or what kind of investments would they support depends on the context that is being expected where that plan will live. If you think that the context is going to be pretty straightforward and remain more or less stable, you just go ahead and do the plan. But if, like today, with COVID and huge debt and big tensions between China and the US, the big inequality that is growing everywhere in the world, famines given because of climate change, and so on, the context suddenly is no longer given. And so what you have to do is to spell out what context does your plan imply, which we call the ghost or the phantom scenario. What is the implicit context that you have in mind to go ahead with this plan or this policy? And what alternative futures might come towards you that are not the expected implicit ghost or phantom scenario that could happen to you? And can you make your strategy a bit more robust if a different future comes to you? And what we do with scenario planning is we spell out the contextual assumptions in a given plan or intent or policy and manufacture two or three alternatives to the one that is expected that challenge those assumptions and prepare you for making yourself more robust. Even if none of the scenarios that you imagine come about, the fact that you've rehearsed different futures allows you to more nimbly and more quickly move from the intended plan to an alternative future. 
So that's what scenario planning is about. So when we write a strategy, when we try to, to create the future, we usually try to choose the future that, that we prefer, that suits best our interest. Is scenario planning a way to stay honest and more objective with, with the future? We cannot be objective about the future because objectivity, at least in science, is based on facts and all of the facts are in the past. So it's not about being objective, it's about being useful. The question that you asked reminds me of a conversation I had with the canton of Geneva a couple of years ago. I was invited to talk to the planners there. And there are three different futures in the room battling each other. There was the preferred future that the politicians had sold to the citizens. There were the probable futures that engineers and accountants and economists had been manufacturing from yesterday's models. They took yesterday's data, they modeled it, and then they projected yesterday's models into the future, and they put up some probability that tomorrow would be like yesterday or later. And then there were the scenario futures, which are plausible futures. As there is more and more uncertainty, more turbulence, more novelty, more ambiguity, the importance of the plausible future increases, the probable futures are actually quite useless because yesterday is, is no longer an information for tomorrow. And so forecasts are not reliable. What you're saying, if I try to rephrase it, is using scenario planning will make you nimbler, more agile, more flexible, more resilient. So is that the, the, the point? And why is it important in a crisis like this to be more, more resilient? Yes, but that's not all that it does. A lot of people think of scenario planning as a way of seeing problems and challenges earlier, which it can do. More importantly, because I'm a business school professor, I like to see scenarios as an opportunity to look at the top-line growth possibilities. And that often happens in a, in a second iteration of the scenarios. In the first iteration, the world is going to end. Our plans are not going to work well. We're going to have to sell three or four divisions. In a second iteration, you say, okay, so in that world, these negative things happen, but what opportunities arise? And what new things come up? And with whom could we have a collaboration that we don't have a collaboration today? And what kind of different sources of value and of wealth creation might arise? What public goods are going to be invested in at that point? And how can we engage with that? So scenario planning, as we understand it, both in Norman Partners, but also in Oxford University, is a way of looking at the good and the bad coming towards us and to see that early enough that you can engage with it before the window of opportunity closes. So are you saying that on top of being more nimble, scenario planning also helps innovation? How can you tie this, scenario planning and, and innovation? When I was in the... Uh, corporate strategy team in Shell, we wrote about how scenario planning informs not only innovation as it is today, but what kind of innovation might arise in the future. And one of the conclusions of the work is that you needed to populate any innovation with projects, skills, initiatives, but also with quite a lot of collaborations. Strategy in these complex times needs to be a much more collaborative strategy than a competitive strategy in order to seize the opportunities that turbulence, uncertainty, novelty, and ambiguity offers to companies as it comes towards us. And scenarios and scenario planning is a very good platform 
to open up conversations that were otherwise unavailable. So, Raphael, the world and the business community at large is starting to understand that scenario planning has a lot of value in in, uh, uncertain times like the ones we are living right now. And as one of the world leading experts, I'm sure that uh, many, many people and organizations and governments have reached out to you. Is there anything you can you can share with us on what you've been working uh, lately and, and how you see the world coming up? Yes, we've been fortunate that the methodology we've developed is a very adaptable methodology. And over the last few years, and these are all in the public record, so I'm not giving any secrets away. I've had the privilege of working, for example, with the IMF. We've been working with the future of whole scientific fields. We've done work with the future of gastroenterology in Europe. So scientific fields, intergovernmental agencies. You know, the British government has an, an advisory group that I, I supported earlier this year on the future of food and rural affairs and agriculture. Extinction Rebellion has come and asked me for advice on on the future of that movement. So you go from companies, intergovernmental organizations. We've had lots of live cases in our scenarios program from NGOs such as Mercy Corps and Oxfam and the National Breast Cancer Coalition in the United States and Diabetes UK on the future of everything from the future of humanitarian care to the future of, uh, of diabetes. So we've had a very big variety of parties. And what we like is that the methodology sort of sits quite nicely and fits its way in a friendly way to challenge assumptions and be helpful to leaders, whether you're uh, working in an intergovernmental agency or a government or a city or an NGO, or a scientific field, or a company. Last month, you published an article in the Harvard Business Review saying basically that resilience is going to trump efficiency going forward, and that in corporates and smaller organizations, roles may change between the the CFO and and the supply chain. Can you share a bit more? The HBR article in June co-authored with two of my ex-students, Kieran McGinley, and uh, Steve Churchhouse looked at what the post-COVID world might bring to us. And we don't know if if there will really be a post-COVID world. There's a current issue in The Economist about comparing the AIDS epidemic with the COVID epidemic. And the AIDS epidemic has not disappeared. There's no cure. There's no vaccine for AIDS. Maybe we will have to live with COVID in some way or another for perhaps a decade or more, as has been the case with AIDS. So we do not know what kind of changes could happen, but certainly the first 30 years of the 20th century show you how much change can happen. The rise of the Bolsheviks, the rise of fascism, the big depression, the big pandemic of 1918, etc. So big changes are certainly possible. What we looked at is If we look at the legacy that we had coming into this COVID pandemic, it was a legacy in business of maximizing shareholder value and returns. And to do that, probably uh, at least since the 1980s, the CFO became a very important player 
very easy to calculate ratios became the currency of doing business. That created, as we know, a very efficient way of producing value with just-in-time, zero stocks, sweating assets hard. As we know, that zero stock, just-in-time efficiency is not resilient. And when you are hit by something like COVID-19, resilience becomes a much higher priority compared to efficiency. Efficiency is less important. It's not so much, am I going to pay 99 cents or $2 for a mask? Is am I going to have masks? And when, when you have that requirement for resilience, the argument that we developed is that for firms, it is the procurement function, not just buying, but orchestrating a whole host of values to make sure that you have the masks and the PPE of the right quality at the right time and the right size, regardless of efficiency. So the relative value of procurement goes up and the relative value of finance goes down. Now, of course, in many organizations, procurement reports to the CFO, so that's the way it is. But the the point is not so much the individual value of the CFO or the individual value of the chief procurement officer. It's the relative importance that they both have to make business viable down the road. And that is driven largely because of the requirement to be prepared for the next wave of COVID, God forbid, and the next lack of equipment that you might require. There are $15 trillion of public money issued at the end of May. That money that the government is pouring into the economy to avoid a collapse will bring in different values to the economy than just shareholder return. A good example in the public record was the single biggest owner of Lufthansa, who did not like what the Merkel government was offering in terms of a rescue package for Lufthansa. He is quoted in the Financial Times saying, government has no, no role running an air, airline. Well, without the government money, his airline would have gone under. And so because of the situation that we're in, government is going to have an important role with public good values, not private return values, in companies that it has saved and perhaps some of the debt will be converted into equity, but in any case, we'll have a lot of power. And procurement is well positioned to orchestrate how those different values, the values for the customer, the values for the citizens, the values for the shareholders and investors and lenders, the values that all of these parties, of course, the values that we require for the planet not to collapse because of climate change, all of those values are going to be articulated strategically by procurement more than by strategies. I expect that the strategy function and the procurement function in different companies will work much more closely together in this coming decade than they did in the last 20 years. So more resilience, more presence of governments in business, balancing the power of uh, traditional financial institutions, so acting more for the greater good of a population rather than just for the ratio and the efficiency. So is that good or bad for climate change, for to fight this, this climate crisis, which is the other one looming? 
or is it just that climate emergency is something that, that is behind us and we're not going to care about until we, we really get rid of COVID and the, the, the amounts of debt that we are accumulating with all that money that governments are printing today? It's a really good question. And this is where scenarios are very useful because you can certainly manufacture a scenario where the environment falls by the wayside, certainly in the places where lockdown is being lifted because of social distancing, the take-up of public transport is down, the take-up of private cars is up, and that means more pollution. And so it could very well be that the private-public responses to COVID make the climate emergency much worse than it already was. If you believe in the New Green Deal, and uh, initiatives where you are in Asia, certainly in China, where perhaps because pollution could create social unrest, the Chinese government might create a very big green investment, which will be copied everywhere else. It could be that the public-private collaboration that we draw attention to in the article, our Business Review article, could accelerate a, not a, a going back to normal, but a bouncing forward to a more ecologically sustainable. The jury is out. Both, both scenarios are possible. We all know which one we prefer, but when it comes to personal choices, would you rather take a car or would you rather go and get yourself infected with, with COVID in a densely populated public transport? If you have the choice, many poor people don't have the choice. Now, it's encouraging that they have realized that they need to move to an alternative form of energy. My colleagues and friends in Extinction Rebellion say that the 2050 targets are way too late, that they have to do that a lot earlier. Can it be done earlier? Are we willing to exit the world that has been created around oil that quickly to save the planet? Are we going to be able to do that or are we going to be in very serious climate-related migration, wars, famines, and all kinds of horrors that are certainly plausibly going to come to us even during the decade of the 2020s? So this climate emergency is really serious. And this is something that, that can come at us and in, in this is a scenario you would, uh, you would consider, at least if, uh, if it's so difficult to activate and realize this, uh, this energy transition. If you had, just to finish, one advice to give to uh, any CEO of large, small companies or startups in those times of turbulences or, or unknown or uncharted territories, what would it be? I always give them one piece of advice, which is go and talk to somebody else that is a peer. Another way is to check whether the conversation that the non-executive directors and the board and the executives are having with each other is as constructive and as courageous and as challenging as it needs to be. And if there's doubts that the wrong questions or you know things like, are we doing enough early enough and courageously isn't enough about climate change or inequality or the debt that is going to hit the societies we're in or the unemployment that is going to be caused by the new wave of AI-intensive automation. If those courageous conversations are not at the level that they would like to, to do, one would like them 
who followed Case Van der Heiden's uh, advice in his book, Scenarios, the uh, Art of Strategic Conversation, and raised the game of the courageous conversations that need to happen. So go and meet peers, talk with them, see what has worked for them, and then try it out. It's not a, a very dangerous thing. See if it works, and if it does, you can then scale it up. Mm. Collaboration is what will get us to the next. Collaboration to have more courageous conversations and to challenge ourselves and to bring innovations forward together in ways that would not happen if we just innovated on our own. Thank you, Rafael Ramirez, uh, founding partner at uh, Norman Partners, director of scenario planning program at uh, Oxford University, and the first professor of practice at uh, Oxford University in uh, scenario planning. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Manuel. Thanks for listening to Innovation at the Edge by Schneider Electric. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. If you like this episode, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Thanks. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be undertaken as financial, economic, legal, business, tax, or investment advice. The information, statements, views, and opinions should not be construed as the provision of advice by Schneider Electric or as an offer to buy or sell any products or services or to make or consider an investment or course of action.